We're now at this last passage in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Malachi 4, 4 to 6. Remember the law of Moses. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Amen. This passage from verses 4 to 6 has a few a few places where there are many interpretations or different interpretations. We'll seek to simplify them and focus on what is the right and true interpretation. When we come now to this last part of the book of Malachi, Malachi has closing statements. First, in verse 4, a closing statement in reference to where the focus of the people should be in the past. The past is the law of Moses. And then he tells them to look forward to the future in verses 5 and 6, to the coming of Elijah the prophet. When Elijah the prophet comes and what shall happen when he arrives. So both the past in verse 4 and the future 5 and 6. First, let's deal with the past. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Well, first, we see the, that he's saying to the people to remember. And why is it necessary for him to say to remember? Because the people are forgetful. We are forgetful. That's why we have to be told to remember. In the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses preached his last messages, the book of Deuteronomy is his last written work. And in the book before he dies, this is after the 40 years of wilderness wandering, he says this, chapter 4, verse 9. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. They are supposed to give heed, keep diligently, lest they forget what they saw and heard and not let anything depart from their heart, their whole life. And also, the past is supposed to be taught to the future. The past, make them known to your sons and your grandsons. And remember what happened at Horeb, that's on Mount Sinai, what happened there and what all God said, because he essentially wanted them to fear him. That's why he came in such a fearful, terrifying, ominous way with thunder, lightning, clouds, smoke, fire, earthquake, and even said, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be put to death. So do you better not come near me. I'm that holy and righteous. 
Well, they were supposed to remember all that and teach their children. 4.23 says, 4.23 to 24. So watch yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 12. 6, 12. Let's read from 6, 10. 6, 10 to 13. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. All the way to 15, let's read. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. They were going to inherit many things in the land of Canaan, which they did not build. But they shouldn't be boastful and proud and complacent about it all, thinking that they deserve it, they're good people, everything will always be fine. No. It says in verse 12, watch yourself lest you forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He brought them out of Egypt from horrible slavery, torture, and death. He brought them out of that. And of course, slavery in Egypt is a symbol of slavery to sin. And therefore, remember your past and then the future Fear only the Lord, worship him, swear by him, do not follow other gods. Because God is jealous, he's a jealous God, and his anger will be kindled and he'll wipe them off the face of the earth. So ingratitude leads to a curse. Ingratitude leads to a curse. But it's not just that they are supposed to remember what God said in the Old Testament, which is true. Even the New Testament tells us to remember the Old Testament and even remember the New Testament. Don't forget the Bible. Don't forget to read. Don't forget to know what it says, but understand it well and remember it well. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. To write the same things again is no trouble, and it's a safeguard. He is happy to repeat what is necessary, and it's necessary, why? Because it will safeguard them, it will protect them, from evildoers, evil workers, as he says, dogs, evil workers, false circumcision, verse 2. 
It will protect them from heretics, all false teachers, if they remember what the Lord says in his word. Further, we find in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Hebrews 12, 5. We read five and, 4 to 6. Hebrews 12, 4 to 6. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. We ought not to forget the words of Scripture. And in this case, he's quoting Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, and or Job 5, 17. Quoting from the Old Testament, telling us not to forget. Second Peter chapter 1, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, Second Peter 1, 12. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. He's happy to remind them until he breathes his last breath about what they're supposed to do. And he wants this to be the case so that they might diligently keep the ways of God. He's not tired of repeating himself for the sake of the truth, for people to be reminded. Chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verse, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Both the prophets and the apostles are to be remembered. A couple of more in Jude. Jude verse 5. Jude 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And also verse 17. Verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though we may already know some things, we may know many things. We need to be reminded, both from the prophets and the apostles. Those who scoff at reminders, those who scoff at repetition, are scoffing at God. And they deserve the judgment of God. 
Next, Malachi says, the law of Moses. The law of Moses. Why does he only mention the law of Moses? He's being specific, it's of Moses. So he's not saying law in a general way, meaning all the books of the Old Testament or all the books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. He's not saying it in any comprehensive general way. He's saying it in this specific way, law of Moses. And he specifies because he says in Horeb, in Horeb. Horeb is another word for Sinai. These words are used synonymously for the mountains or mountain where Moses and Israel dwelt for some time in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. That place. So he is specifically speaking of Moses. Why so? Malachi is a prophet, correct? He's a prophet of the Lord. He's been saying, thus says the Lord, or says the Lord of hosts to you, O Israel, who despise my name. He's been saying that. He's inspired prophet. He's a holy prophet. But why only Moses? Because Moses is the foundation. And the prophets are his interpreters. Because over the centuries, over the millennia, whatever Moses said sets the foundation. He initiates everything. The beginning of all the doctrines of the Bible are in Moses. Moses wrote everything that was necessary for us to know. He predicted the coming of Christ, Deuteronomy 18.15, Numbers 24.17. He predicted the coming of Christ, Genesis 49.10. He predicted the coming of Christ, even the death of Christ through the sacrificial system. Then, if he's predicting everything and asserting everything, then what is the problem? The problem is the people need reminders. The people need exhortations. The people need admonishments. They need to be warned that, listen, Moses already wrote, and he told you clearly what God expects of you. He told you clearly the way of salvation. He told you clearly to believe in Christ, right? Jesus said, for he wrote of me, John 5, John 5, 39 to 47, he wrote of me. So Moses testified of Christ, they should believe in Christ. But the problem is the people are constantly making excuses, living in sin saying Moses did not say so. Moses was unclear. No, only Moses, but not anybody else. But then that's why we have Joshua. We have the judges. We have the prophets, starting from Samuel all the way to Malachi. We have all these prophets telling the people again and again, this is the correct interpretation of Moses. And then people are still obtuse, dull, blind. And that's why we have the apostles. The apostles also are interpreting Moses correctly and the prophets. So the law of Moses. Also, when he says law of Moses, he doesn't mean that it's only judgment, wrath, rules and regulations. He's not talking about that. He's talking about everything Moses wrote. 
which includes what? Those passages we just mentioned. Numbers 24.17, Genesis 49.10, Deuteronomy 18.15. Messianic Christological passages that explain the way of salvation. Deuteronomy 30.11-14. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So this word is the word of salvation. That's what they needed to remember. So sometimes when the Bible is saying law, it means the parts that expose our sin. At other times when the Bible is saying law, it's referring to the Christological parts. At other times, it's referring to the Ten Commandments. And the more comprehensive way is anything Moses wrote. And the context will tell us what is meant. In this case, it's most likely, since this is the conclusion to the prophet's book here, Malachi's book, he's talking about everything Moses wrote. Both judgment for sin, but also faith in Christ for redemption and forgiveness of sins. Also, when he says Moses, he's not ascribing too much glory to Moses. He's describing, he's ascribing authorship. The instrument or the agent that God used, the holy prophet. That's what he's doing. He's not saying Moses is some angelic being or some demigod. He's not saying anything like that. He's speaking of him as a holy prophet. That's the reason he's saying it. So though it says law of Moses, it's not as though Moses originated it. It originated from God, from God himself. And Moses even knew when he was preaching to the people that it was originating from God. And he told them clearly on many occasions. Let's see one. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 1 to 8, where Moses tells the people the commandments of God, and he very well knows that what he's telling them and writing for them, they are the words of God. So he knows, everybody knows, the origin is God, the mediator or the agent is Moses. He's the representative of God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, for all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law? 
which I am setting before you today. Verse 1, I am teaching. Verse 2, I am commanding you. Verse 3, I have taught you. And verse 8, I am setting before you today. That's the agent, the author, the speaker, the preacher is Moses, the holy prophet. But he is saying they're coming from God. Look at verse 2. The commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. What God commanded me, I'm commanding you. That's what Moses says. So we shouldn't discount, we shouldn't denigrate, we should not dismiss Moses because he's writing from God. Jesus believed this. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. That he was writing from God about Christ. John 5, 45 to 47. John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote of Christ. Therefore, he's writing the words of Christ from God himself. Even Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 20. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The prophecies of Moses was not his own interpretation. It was not made by his own human will. It did not originate, his book did not originate from his own human will. The origin is the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. The Holy Spirit of God. That's what we've already seen in 2 Peter 3 where he speaks of the prophets as holy prophets, 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. He said, Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. That includes Moses. And then 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, when we distort the scriptures of the Old Testament and when we distort Paul, it is dangerous. He says in 3, 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. The reason we focus on this fact is many deny Mosaic authorship of the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy. Some people even deny his historical existence. But that cannot be the case. 
And if they acknowledge his existence and his authorship, they say he was just a religious fanatic who misled the people by giving them some of his own thoughts, claiming to be thoughts of God. Those beliefs are very common. In fact, even in the time after the apostles, about AD 150, there was a man named Marcion who despised Moses and all the books of the Old Testament and said, we don't need the Old Testament at all. It's not just some modern people like Andy Stanley or the Church of Christ that say, we don't need the Old Testament. It's been going on for 2,000 years at least. And even in Moses' day, they were saying, we don't need you, Moses. We are going to appoint a leader and return to Egypt. We don't need you. You're not a prophet. We don't need you at all. But that's not the case. Also notice, it says in Malachi 4.4, my servant. What a designation. That's God speaking of Moses that way. My servant. We find this in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Joshua 1 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses, my servant, is dead. The servant of the Lord and my servant. There, God speaks of him in this way. So he belongs to God. He's the servant of God. He did not serve himself. He was not master of his own life. He was under the authority and rule of God himself. Moses was. It's evident and plain right there. And even in Malachi 4.4. Why is this necessary? Because some people think Moses was disobedient. Moses was an unbeliever. And Moses did not go to heaven. Because Moses died in the wilderness, Moses is not saved. That is very, very detestable for anybody to say that. It's very loathsome for people to say that. And yet people do. Many pastors and parishioners say so. If that is the case, then why is it that Jesus said, as we already read in John 5, 45 to 47, that on the day of judgment, Moses is going to accuse his readers who refused to believe in the person he was writing about from Genesis to Deuteronomy. He's going to be judging them because he's saved and these wicked people who deny him are unsaved. If we deny Moses, we deny Christ. If we deny Christ, we deny Moses. And Moses will be our accuser on the day of judgment. Another place is in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a glimpse of the future, the Mount of Transfiguration, 
a glimpse of the future heavenly eternal kingdom. Who was there then? Matthew 17, verse 1. We read verses 1 to 3. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moses and Elijah are there, talking with Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. And one more place to silence this argument. There are many things we could say, but to silence the fallacious argument that Moses was unsaved and perished in the wilderness because he was unsaved, we have Hebrews 11. Isn't Hebrews 11 famously called the Hall of Faith? Hall of Faith? So these men had faith, true faith. He's not talking about false faith in chapter 11 because he wants us to emulate this faith. And who does he mention? Moses, eleven twenty-four to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was a man of faith. Not temporary faith. Hebrews 11 is not even describing temporary faith. He's talking about permanent faith until the end of life. Because in some of these cases, it cost them their life. Because it says later in verses 32 to 40, he says, 37, they were put to death with a sword. They were put to death with the sword. And in chapter 12, we've already read, 12.4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. The faithful until the end of life remained faithful, and we're supposed to until the end of life, even if it costs our blood. All right, then another point to make is the statutes and ordinances. The statutes and ordinances or statutes and judgments. You may recall when we read Deuteronomy 4, 1 to 8, it said that there a few times. Statutes and judgments, statutes and judgments. Likely, this is where Malachi is getting it from the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses repeats that phrase. It's likely the case that statutes refers to the ritual or ceremonial law, and the judgments refer to the moral and civil law. The moral and civil law, the ordinances or the judgments, but the statutes are reference to the sacrificial ceremonial ritual law. So remember all of it. And then, and then we come back to verse 4 where it says, Which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Here, too, in verse 4, he says, I commanded him. Law of Moses, but I commanded him. They originate from God. 
Also, we see in verse 4, it's for all Israel. Why would that be necessary to say it's for all Israel? Because, just like with the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, it's named rightly in that it has a lot of laws and prescriptions for the Levites to know, for the Levites to know and practice. But we should not mistake the book of Leviticus as though it is only meant for the Levites to know. Even though it has that title, and it's not necessarily a bad title, because it does pertain to the priests or the Levites and what they were to know and what they were to do, but also what they were supposed to teach the people. So if the Levites are supposed to teach the people in the book of Leviticus, then the people need to know the book of Leviticus, not just the Levites, correct? And the reason we have to address this, people say, well, that part of the Bible is not for me. The pastors need to know it, or so-and-so needs to know it, but I don't need to know it. I don't need, I can ignore that part of the Bible. Whether it's the book of Leviticus or any other part, we're not supposed to ignore any of it. For example, even within the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, chapter 10, we read this. Chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. Chapter 10, 8 to 11 of the book of Leviticus to show though the Levites were supposed to know it, what were they supposed to do when they knew it? 10.8. The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. What are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be distinguishers, making a distinction. They're also supposed to be teachers. And who are they supposed to teach? The sons of Israel. Not just the tribe of Levi, or not just the men or the males in the tribe of Levi, but everybody. Everybody, because what they were supposed to bring, the people need to know what kind of animal is acceptable for the given occasion. What does the Lord say? Well, they need to know who's going to teach them, the Levites, and they need to read it themselves and figure out and make sure before they approach the Lord for the occasion. Also, we read in Deuteronomy 33, 10. Deuteronomy 33, 10. This is Moses blessing the tribe of Levi. Deuteronomy 33.10. Moses blesses the tribe of Levi and says this. Verse 10. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. They, the Levites, shall teach Israel. And he doesn't mean part of Israel. He means all of Israel. 
The same with us. Is it good to be ignorant of the word in the New Testament? Is it good to be ignorant of the word in the New Testament? Doesn't it say in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ? How will we have faith unless we hear the word of Christ? How about Colossians 3, 16? Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ richly dwell within you. We are not supposed to be beggars and paupers in our knowledge of the Bible, but we're supposed to be wealthy. It says richly dwell within you. How can you be wealthy if you only know John 3.16 and Matthew 7.1, do not judge. How, how can you be wealthy if you only know that much of the Bible? You have to know all of it. As he said, it's for all Israel to know. Next we reach verse 5. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He introduces this next section, the future section. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Similar to chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 3.1, we said that messenger and he will clear the way before me. He is John the Baptist. The messenger is John the Baptist. I am going to send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he, John the Baptist, will clear the way before me. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 5 is also John the Baptist. But someone might say, it doesn't say John the Baptist. It says Elijah the prophet. And it doesn't say John the Baptist who will be like Elijah the prophet. It doesn't say like or as. It just says Elijah the prophet. Well, he's using a metaphor. When we have similes, then we'll have a conjunction or preposition as or like. And many times the Bible, and many times even in English, we use similes with as and like. Right? As tall as the sky. We don't mean literally somebody is that tall, but we do say something or someone is very tall by using a simile, tall as the sky. But what, but what about when we say the mouse on the computer? The mouse. My mouse is not working well today. My mouse is broken on my computer, my desktop computer. We don't say the hand device 
that moves the cursor is not working today. I need to get a new one. We don't use long and lanky words to describe something that becomes a metaphor in our language. We just say mouse because it looks like a mouse, but it's not a real mouse. And the Bible does the same thing here too, right here with Elijah the prophet. When Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, he didn't say, I am like a door of the sheep. He says, I am the door. But was he a literal, physical, wooden door? No. He's speaking in metaphors. Okay? And the same thing here. I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. He does not say Elijah the Tishbite. Because in 1 Kings 17, he is called Elijah the Tishbite. Um, of the settlers of Gilead. So he was from the area of Gilead in the land of Israel, but specifically from Tishbe, that location in Gilead. So he's not saying, I'm going to send Elijah the Tishbite. He says, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. Instead of focusing on Elijah the person, he's focused on Elijah the the prophet or the officer of that position, prophet. He's speaking of the role and not the actual person. We have to clarify this, and we will do so with some New Testament passages. We have to clarify it. Why? Because people, both in Christianity and outside of Christianity, especially Hindus and Buddhists, they say that the Bible teaches the transmigration of the soul. The Bible teaches reincarnation. The Bible teaches here in the book of Malachi, reincarnation, transmigration of the soul. That is, our invisible soul inhabits one human body in one lifetime, and then that human physical body dies, and then that soul will go and, and inhabit another human body, and do so for millions and millions of times, transmigration. So the soul is migrating, going across from one body to another body, millions and millions of times. And they say the Bible teaches it, right here. The Bible's not teaching it. The Bible doesn't, does not teach transmigration, reincarnation anywhere. It only teaches resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, Acts twenty four fifteen. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. John 5, 28 to 29. Jesus said that. No transmigration reincarnation. How can we prove it further? We just said that Malachi already mentioned 3 verse 1, my messenger. But let's also go to some New Testament passages to confirm this interpretation. And for most of these, we'll simply read so that we see what Jesus says. Jesus and his apostles say, but there is one particular passage that will be the clearest to clinch it for us. The first one is Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 7. Matthew 11.7, where Jesus speaks of John. 
John has sent some messengers to him. And now verse 7, 11, 7. And as they were going away, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's quoting Malachi 3.1. Verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not yet arisen anyone greater. There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men, violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. He himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Matthew 17. Matthew 17. 9 to 13. Matthew 17, 9. After the Mount of Transfiguration, this dialogue takes place. Matthew 17, 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Matthew and these disciples understand Jesus said John the Baptist is Elijah who already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. In verse 11, when he says Elijah is coming and will restore all things, he means that that prophecy is true from Malachi. That is supposed to happen. And then in 12, he says it did happen. It's supposed to happen, verse 11 and verse 12 it did happen. They did to him whatever they wished. Mark chapter Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 verse 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 9. 9 to 13. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. 
And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they began questioning him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come? First, first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore everything. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. That last phrase, just as it is written of him, this explains why John the Baptist is called Elijah. Why? Because it does not say categorically in the Old Testament, Elijah or John the Baptist will be executed or beheaded by a one Herod and his wicked, adulterous wife. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything that specific. But why is he called Elijah? 1 Kings 19.2. 1 Kings 19.2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. 1 Kings 19.2. 1 Kings 19.10. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. They have killed the prophets. They disregard the Lord. They worship idols. He says, I alone am left. Well, in the days of John the Baptist, wasn't he the lone prophet in the wilderness? And didn't the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, did they not want to seize John too? But what was the problem? John had such a great following, they were afraid if they arrested John the Baptist, the crowds would seize them and do away with them. So they didn't want to do that. And that was the same problem they had with Jesus. They didn't want to seize Jesus in plain day when the, he was with the crowds because then the crowds would have an uprising and then grab them and do away with them because they were harming a good man and a true prophet, Jesus, right? So they found a sinister way to arrest him. So as they sought John's life, as they sought Elijah's life, that's how they are compared. And even the Son of Man, as he says, they're going to treat the Son of Man the same way. That's why he's called Elijah. There's another passage, and we, for that, we go to um, Mark, Mark chapter 1. Another reason why he is compared to Elijah. Mark chapter 1 and verses 1 to 8 describe the coming of John the Baptist. And then notice in verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. John wore camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist. In the book of 
Second Kings, in the book of Second Kings, it says this of Elijah, the actual prophet Elijah the Tishbite. It says, Second Kings one eight, and they answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. They revered Moses. The sons of Israel also revered Elijah. Moses and Elijah. So John came as Elijah had come. And Jesus came as Moses had come. Remember, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet among you, from among you, like me from among your brethren, Deuteronomy 18, 15. And as well, John is compared to Elijah. So, next passage is Luke 1. Luke 1, when the birth of John the Baptist is announced, this is what the angel tells John's father, Zacharias. Luke 1, 15, Luke 1, 15 to 17. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist is going to be the one to do what? Turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. That explains his crowds, the multitudes that were following him. Though he performed no miracle, everything he said about him was true. John didn't perform miracles, but he was preaching Christ, and the Holy Spirit was working in the preaching ministry of the true prophet John. That's how he was able to turn many back. Then verse 17 says, look at the key phrase. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. He's the predecessor, forerunner of Christ and in the spirit and power of Elijah. He doesn't mean he is Elijah. He clarifies, he says, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Also, since we're here in Luke 1.17, he is quoting part of Malachi 4.6, our last verse. What does Malachi mean? Luke tells us what he means right here. 117. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There are commentators who say that the later generations of Israel and the godly forefathers will be united. That's what this promise is. 
saying that the fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others like them. However, it says here, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So, some are believers, others are unbelievers, and the point is to reconcile them so that they are all they all are believers. It doesn't seem like he's talking about the ancient patriarchs and their descendants many, many generations later. It seems like he's talking about the current fathers and sons, the current generation, that there would be a great revival and many of them who were disobedient would be reconciled to each other. And that we do have, for example, in the case of John chapter 4, verse 53. John four fifty-three says, So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. John four fifty-three, His whole household. Household, which phrase we find in the book of Acts as well. Acts 16, 34, 18, 8, where the household also believes. Even in the case of Acts 16, 11 to 15, the household of Lydia. So these, in these ways, there is reconciliation and peace in the families when they are all believing in Christ. Not when they are unbelievers or one side is unbelieving when they believe in Christ. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, which means that John prepares people for the ministry of Christ. That was John's purpose, to prepare them for the ministry of Christ. Having said that, let's now turn to Luke 3. Luke 3. After giving us the date and place of the ministry of Christ, of uh, John, Luke 3, verses 1 and 2. And then it says, verse 3, 3 to 6. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall... See the salvation of God. When it says all flesh, he's talking about many crowds of people. The multitudes would see Christ. It's not talking about seeing salvation abstractly. It's saying see salvation concretely. That is, John prepares people for the ministry of Christ. And it says in 3.18, John the Baptist preached So with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel 
to the people. Luke 3.18, John the Baptist preached the gospel to the people. He preached Christ, prepared the people to embrace Christ when he started to preach in his own public ministry. We have a couple of more matters to explain. Malachi 4, verse 5. What is the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord? Is the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord the Lord Jesus' first coming or second coming? Some say first coming, others say second coming. It seems based on Luke 1.17 and even Luke 3, which we just read, that it's talking about the first coming of Christ. Because if this is specifically John the Baptist, and we've already said so, verse 5, Elijah the prophet is John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah, then he's, his duty is to prepare people for the Lord. So that would be the coming of the first coming of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what's he accomplishing? He's restoring the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. But how was the first coming of Christ the great and terrible day of the Lord? In the sense that John preached, he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. In the Holy Spirit and in fire. And he is gathering up the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Correct? Matthew 3, 1 to 12. John was preaching that that's what Jesus would do. So Jesus... On the one hand, he is preaching salvation. On the other hand, he's preaching the judgment to come. You better be ready for the judgment to come. That's what he was preaching in his first coming. So in that sense, his first coming was a great and terrible day. If anyone does a study, to take one example of the book of Matthew, find out how often Jesus speaks of hell how often he speaks of fire, how often he speaks of punishment, how stern he speaks about anybody who does not believe in him, how he even warns his own disciples that they should never deny him because it is God the Father who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That sounds like he's preparing people for the judgment of God. So even in his first coming, it was a great and terrible day. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The first coming was great and terrible in terms of its content. But in terms of the consummation, in terms of the finality of it, that will happen in the second coming. But in terms of the preaching, the announcement of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, 
That was preached during the first coming to prepare people for the second coming. And then finally, we have the end. It says, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Whenever God curses the land, he's cursing the people. Whenever God curses the people or the land in a physical way, it's indicative of a spiritual judgment. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The Jews in many times, many generations, they experienced this punishment. But it's indicative of their eternal punishment, the unbelieving Jews. When they don't repent, then there's a curse. No repentance, no forgiveness. No repentance, no blessing. With repentance comes redemption. Otherwise, there's a curse. A clarification, a couple of clarifications. One, puerile, ignorant commentators say the Old Testament is about law and curses, punishments. But the New Testament (coughs) is about love and grace and blessings. The New Testament starts with the Beatitudes, the blessings of Christ in Matthew chapter 5. But the Old Testament ends with a curse. The last word of the Old Testament, in English at least, is a curse. So it places a curse on us, and that's the way we ought to view the God of the Old Testament. That's typical. Many, many people believe it. And I will read just a little bit of this commentator or commentary volume. The scholars, their last names, Jameson, Fawcett, Brown. These three commentators. In their commentary on Malachi 4, I read just a couple of sentences here. It says, in reference to this last word, curse, it is deeply suggestive that the last utterance from heaven for 400 years before Messiah was the awful word curse. Messiah's first word on the mount was blessed, Matthew 5, verse 3. The law speaks wrath, the gospel blessing. The law speaks wrath, the gospel blessing. And by this, they don't mean that there's a place for the Ten Commandments to preach and convict people of sin. They're talking about all of the Old Testament, the pages of the Old Testament, as opposed to the pages of the New Testament, which are full of blessings. The pages of the Old Testament are full of curses. This paradigm does not suit the evidence. This is one famous commentary from the 1800s, but many people today still consult this. To overturn it, may I say, until the English volumes of the Bible contained only our 39 books in the order we have them, Genesis to Malachi, 
The book of Malachi was not the last book of the Old Testament. In terms of the canon, the ordering of the books, it was not the last one. If we were to consult the Septuagint with the Apocrypha in it, and we'll do it both ways, if we were to consult it with the Apocrypha in it, without the Apocrypha, it does end with the book of Malachi, but the Greek Old Testament Septuagint, translated by Jews from 250 to 150 BC, it has as the last verse the following verse. There's, there's a transposition. Our verses 5 and 6 are not its verses 5 and 6. Our verse 4, Malachi 4.4, 4, is the last verse, and it says this. Remember the law of my servant Moses, accordingly as I charged him, with it in Horeb for all Israel, even the commandments and ordinances. That's the last verse, if you don't include the Apocrypha. But if you do include the Apocrypha, the last book is the prayer of Manasseh, the prayer of repentant king of Judah, Manasseh. And there, let me just read the last verse. This is Manasseh, Supposedly, okay? I will praise thee continually all the days of my life, for all the host of the heavens sings to thee, and thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it ends in a positive note. It doesn't end in a curse. It ends with a very wicked king who repented and praised to God like that. Furthermore, we have the... Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament. And the Hebrew Old Testament, its canonical order, the ordering of the books, is different than the English and even different from the Greek Old Testament. And which book concludes it? The book of Second Chronicles. The book of Second Chronicles. Right here. Second Chronicles. So what's at the end of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 36, what words are there? Are they ominous, fearful, terrifying words, descriptive of the furious, impatient wrath of God? No. Second Chronicles 36, 22 to 23. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. Well, that sounds very good, doesn't it? That God used King Cyrus, the Persian, to build the temple of the Lord, and he even gave the people permission to return from Persia and Babylon to go back to the land of Israel to do so. There's no curse there. It's a blessing. So now I'm just illustrating common falsehoods perpetrated, proclaimed, pontificated by many people, and they speak in ignorance, utter ignorance and stupidity. This reminds us where we started. We have to remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. 
If we don't know the word and know it accurately and follow it, if we don't do that, then we are in trouble. We cannot remain ignorant, but preach it as it is, preach it faithfully, and call people to believe in Christ and repent of their sins. Let's do so. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.